0: Pray together. Father, um, we ask your spirit to work in us and through us in a special way in these moments. Uh, that we would understand your word, and that we would see your face, see its the beauty, and that we'd be changed. Uh, Lord, we um, are naturally um, slow to listen, and our hearts are naturally hard. Soften us uh, that we would love you more. Bless the preaching of your word, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me take your seats. Well, uh, good morning, Denver Prez. If you're new and I haven't had the pleasure of meeting you, I'm Ronnie. I'm one of the pastors here at Denver Prez. And uh, you are joining us in the middle of a sermon series on a letter to the Hebrews. And so each week we've explained how Hebrews is this letter written to this congregation, to these people who are under an immense amount of pressure to assimilate to the dominant culture and to even renounce their faith. And it was so intense that many of them were forsaken by their family, they're forsaken by their neighbors. And they're really under the threat of even physical harm. It was intense. And this group of people, they heard the gospel. They were interested in its message. They went to church, to put it like that. Uh, They might have even identified as Christians. But now there was a cost for being identified with Christ. And so they're asking themselves the question, do I really believe and trust in Jesus Christ? I mean, is following Jesus, like, really worth it? Is he worth it if it means losing my fortune? Is it worth it if it means losing my reputation? Is it worth it if it means losing my life? And here's the thing. is like humans, us, we're inherently self-interested. We're self-protecting creatures. We work to preserve our comforts and our dreams against all other costs, right? And so when there's a threat to those things... It really surfaces uh, our loyalties, and we, it makes us ask some serious questions, right? Because that kind of pressure exposes our deepest loyalties. What do we love the most? And, and as we've learned from this letter, there, there were people in this congregation to the Hebrews who were seriously considering like walking away from Jesus. Uh, maybe they loved their comfort. Maybe they loved their fortunes. Maybe they loved the, the reputation and the respect they got from their friends more than they loved Jesus. And so the author writes this letter to remind them of the supremacy of Jesus over everything, the supremacy of Jesus over life itself. The distillation of the message of Hebrews is that Jesus is better. I mean, think about it. What what must a person believe about Jesus that would lead them to leave everything behind and follow Jesus? I mean, what do they have to believe about him? Even in very difficult circumstances, or even at great risk to themselves. And the author of Hebrews, I mean, he looks at these people, and he says, he's absolutely convinced That if you knew Jesus for who he truly is, if you really knew him, that decision would be easy. That's what Hebrews is about. It's kind of a hard book, but that's its message. Making that decision easy because of the beauty of Jesus. Jesus, in comparison to anything else, is easy. He's exquisite. You know, we summed it up in the quote by Jim Elliott in our very first sermon. Jim says... He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep in order to gain what he cannot lose. And, you know, I've been thinking that this letter to Hebrews is so appropriate for us this time of year. Like, summer is upon us, and it seems promising, doesn't it? The cold of winter, the cold of the pandemic seems to be abating. It's breaking a little bit. We're all, like, super glad that we're slowly, not totally, but we're slowly getting this behind us, and we're optimistic. But can I just say, like, the obvious thing, everyone? This next year, the one that, w- this next year that we're going into will be just like the year behind us, just as miserable, unless something changes in us. I mean, Most of us tend to think that if our circumstances change, we'll have a better year. Smoke and mirrors, it's an illusion. The main problem is not our external circumstances. It's our heart. The problem, guys, is internal. And the way to change, with any measure of, like, soul satisfaction, is surrendering our lives to Jesus and valuing him more than we value Our own lives. That's how come Jesus himself would say those scandalous things like in Mark 8 where he says, whoever would save his life would lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospel's sake will save it. That's what Jesus says. Those are his words. And so this entire letter of Hebrews is about the supremacy of Jesus over all things so that our decisions to follow will become easier, right? Right? This morning, we are going to be focusing on Jesus as the eternal high priest. He is the supreme advocate, the the supreme representative for us. And that's going to be so important for understanding how Jesus is better. And, And so here for you note takers, here's our outline. Jesus as our supreme representative, if that's true, he replaces the priests. Jesus replaces the law, and then he even replaces us. So three things: Jesus replaces the priest, he replaces the law, and he even replaces us. So let's dive into um, chapter seven. Now, listen: if you if you guys spend a lot of time reading the Bible, and you should, I want you Christians read your Bible. Um, but the more you read it, the more you're like, "Hey, the Bible's kind of hard." It's complicated. Like the Old Testament, the New Testament, it's hard. It's always hard every time you read it. I get that. If you think it's hard, you're not weird and you're not a bad Christian. It is a hard book. It's why it's actually really important for Christians to come together, to study the Bible, to learn together like we need each other. Chapter 7 is at the top of the list of complex chapters. So I'm going to have to explain a little bit this morning. So you're going to have to like dial it in. You're going to have to focus a little bit. There's a little explaining that goes. So let's try to stay focused. So chapter 7 talks about this Old Testament figure, this guy named Melchizedek. Now, who is Melchizedek? Well, his name means king of righteousness, and in verse 1, we didn't read verse 1, but the beginning of chapter 7, it tells us that he was the king of Salem, which means the king of peace, right? Salem comes from Shalom, king of peace. You get this. So this guy is the king of righteousness and the king of peace, and one of the features of Melchizedek is that the Bible doesn't tell us, like, anything about this guy. Like, we don't know when and where he was born. We don't know when and where he died, which is, like, highly unusual and mysterious for the Old Testament. He was a king, but the Bible also tells us that he blessed Abraham with wine and bread. You can read about this story in Genesis chapter 14. And then it's, we learn from verse 4 of chapter 7 of Hebrews, Abraham gave him a tenth of all of his spoils, all right, like a tithe of his spoils. So, so, okay, follow this. So Melchizedek is a king, but he's acting like a priest by receiving a tithe, and here's what you need to understand is in the Old, De- in the Old Testament, there's a certain class of people who become priests, but they're from the line of Aaron. From the tribe of Levi. So priests in Israel, you guys, are, they're called Levites. Not every Levite is a priest, but if you are a priest, you come from the tribe of Levi, right? But in chapter 7, um, we see this author. He does something interesting. He takes Psalm 110, all right, and he talks about Melchizedek, this figure, and then he applies it to Jesus. L- look at verse 17. It says, for it is witness of him, of Jesus, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So, okay, the original context of Psalm 110 is talking about King David, who's not from the tribe of Levi, right? He's from the tribe of Judah. So what you're already seeing in the Old Testament is this merging of these two offices of king and priest. So King David's office is a foreshadow of this greater king and priest who is also going to come from the tribe of Judah instead of this tribe of Levi. And so who is this king and priest? Who is this king of righteousness? Who is this king of peace from the tribe of Judah? Class, it's Jesus, right? So Jesus is our king and priest, and this argument, chapter 7, is, making, is mounting this argument that we don't need priests anymore because we have a greater eternal priest. Now, I don't know if this all sounds academic to you, but I want you to remember the context. So here are these people feeling the heat of their culture. They're tempted to give up on Jesus. Identifying with Jesus is causing them some harm— And so they want to just hide in the Jewish religion by running to the Jewish priests. That's that's what they want to do. See, Judaism had some protections that Christianity didn't have in Rome. But the author is looking at these people and saying, don't do it. Because there's no real safety there. Jesus is the only place where a person can find true and real and lasting security. Going back to the Jewish system and the priests doesn't make any sense because Jesus is the final and true eternal high priest. Now, to emphasize this point, the author makes several comparisons between the Levitical priests and then Jesus as the true priest to show that Jesus is better, that Jesus is superior. Let's just look at a few of them in our text. Look at verse 23. He says, The Levitical priests were many in number, but with Jesus, you could do the job of many, right? He's just one. Um, let's, uh, let's read verses 26 and 27. It says, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of other people, since he did this once and for all when he offered up himself. So he's saying these other priests had to offer sacrifices for their own sins. Jesus did it because he's holy and innocent. The other priests had to offer sacrifices daily. Not Jesus. Once and for all he offered up himself. Even in verse 24 he says that the priests were temporary because they were prevented by death from continuing. Like they just died. They couldn't do what they're supposed to do. Not Jesus. It's permanent. He continues forever. Verse 24. And he says the priests sacrificed blood of animals. But Jesus is our high priest, and he offered up his own blood because he was both the priest and the sacrifice. All right, what does that mean for us? <laughs> like, great, you've explained it, Ronnie. You pointed out the text. Uh, can I just modernize? Let me use Ed Clowney's um, modernization of this line of argumentation through an illustration. He says um, Imagine a child who was born with a disease that paralyzed him, right? So the child could not walk under his own strength. And when he was five years old, he was given crutches, and he learns to walk with these crutches. For 20 years, he does this, walking with crutches. Now, he sees other people walking and running. He can't do that, but at least he has the crutches. Now, his crutches are not great, but they're familiar. He's comfortable with his crutches. But then one day... He meets a doctor, and the doctor looks at him and says, I can totally heal your disease. Now, this young man is, like, really happy, really excited, but the doctor says, but I do have one condition. After I heal you, you can never use those crutches again. Now, this makes the boy think. It gives him pause, right? Because the crutches are all this boy has ever known. They are familiar to him. He's so comfortable with his crutches, like they're an extension of his own body. And even though he'd finally be able to run freely, he really is afraid of life without his crutches, you see. But if he were to return to his crutches, his doctor knows that he would never emotionally, psychologically, spiritually be free from them. Y'all hear what I'm saying here? I'm not talking about crutches. This is what chapter 7 is about. This is what's at stake for the original audience. And listen, Denver Prez, it's what's at, at stake for us. See, listen, modern Christian, we grow up. We're, we grow up, we're looking around the world, we see pain, sadness, and brokenness, and we say, this couldn't possibly be all there is to life. There has to be more than what I can see. And so what do we do? We learn religion. In the words of Karl Marx, religion is the opiate of the masses. Or in the words of Robert Heinlein, religion is a crutch for the weak. And they're not half wrong, right? They're not half wrong. Religion, in a general sense, teaches us enough superstition to give us comfort, right? We learn to say things like, God bless you. God has a plan, right? it teaches us that murder and rape are wrong even though a naturalistic version of the world doesn't teach us that seems to be indifferent to murder and rape but we learn that it's wrong moreover a general sense of religion gives us some measure of comfort at funerals and uh, after nat- natural disa- national disasters or natural disasters generic religion is a crutch we're not walking perfectly but It helps get us around a little. But then, Jesus shows up. And he says, enough with religion. I am the creator of all things. I am the sovereign God. There is no other God but me. I'm not a religion. I am a living God. And I'm I'm calling you into true relationship with me. And it will cost you everything. I can forgive you of all of your sins. I can take away your guilt, but you must surrender everything and follow me. Now at this point, you're a little bit excited. right? You've heard the truth, but it's scary. Generic religion is way more comfortable because generic religion does not demand your loyalty. Religion does not make you surrender your life. It doesn't make you surrender your dreams. It doesn't make you surrender your former identity. And Jesus says, I can help you to be free and to run, but you must give me your full loyalty. See, the Jewish priests represented comfortable religion, but now there is this true eternal high priest and so we got to ask, what about us? I mean, are we going to follow Jesus, or are we just going to hide out in comfortable, generic religion? Chapter 7 says Jesus is better. He's superior. He replaces the priests, and he replaces generic religion. That's the first point. Let's go on to our second point. He replaces not only the priests, but Jesus also replaces the law. All right, I spent a long time on point number one. I'll move a little bit quick, more quickly through point two and three. Verses, uh, Let's jump right in. Look at verses 18 and 19 in your Bibles. 18 says, For on one hand, the former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. All right, what what does that mean in verse 19 when it says the law made nothing perfect? here's, Here's what's happening there. Because of the pressure to abandon Christianity, some people reasoned that they would try to be good people and therefore God would be happy with them, right? They looked at the rigorous Jewish laws and followed them very rigidly thinking that it would make them perfect, right? It would do the deal. But the author of Hebrews is saying that following rules, no matter how good you are, does not provide salvation. It doesn't make you perfect. Because here's the thing. You might have heard Tim Keller say this. If obeying the law could save you from your sins or improve your standing with God then we would not be singing songs to Jesus. We would be singing songs to Moses. Right? Right? If good behavior could fix the problem of sin between us and God, we would be worshiping Moses. Thank you for the tablets, sir. Super helpful. Right? Obedience to the law does not give us the perfection that God requires. And in fact, if you are a generally a good person, I'm not, just spoiler alert, I'm not a a generally good person. But if you were, the law has a way of making you think that you're going to be accepted by God based on your moral performance. That's why the religious leaders hated Jesus, and that's why the prostitutes totally loved him. Totally loved him. But the original audience, they had been deceived into thinking that following the Jewish law was the same thing as following Jesus. They were wrong. They were wrong not only because it doesn't work, but they are wrong because they don't even know the God who stands behind all of the law. They don't even know what he's like. You know, Philip Yancey, a famous author, he describes himself when he was a young, uh, a young man. He says... I grew up with the image of a mathematical God who weighed my good and bad deeds on a set of scales and always found me wanting. I imagined God as a distant, thundering figure who prefers fear and respect to love. I think that describes a lot of us. We tend to relate to God that way. The human heart reduces God from being... A person to being an equation that's simply assessing our good works but listen you guys if that's you uh, that does not have the power to transform your heart and I've, I've seen it with my own children right I can give my children a rule I can say do not lie that's the that's the rule I can give them the rule But that rule does nothing to help them love integrity or love truth from the bottom of their heart. So what helps them then to not lie? It's not a rule. What is it? It's a relationship. And not just any relationship, but rather a love affair with their daddy, right? It's it's not just any relationship. That's what we need then with the creator of the universe who loves us with this white-hot, passionate, and sacrificial love. We need a love affair with him. The original audience, just like us, we want to hide behind a rule, behind a law, behind a religion with the hope that we'll just be okay. But the law... Can't make anything perfect. Only Jesus can. So Jesus replaces the law. And you need Him. All right. So we saw how Jesus replaces the priests, and we saw Jesus replaces the law. Final point Jesus replaces us. What's that mean? (laughs) All right. So, chapter seven depicts uh, the Lord as being our great and eternal high priest, right? But what what is a priest? Well, what is that? So the imagery employed in this particular text is, would be similar to what you and I associate with lawyers. Uh, let me explain how. So, like, when a person is accused of something, he goes before a judge who will assess that person's innocent or innocence or guilt, right? Y'all follow that, right? Now, there's two things to note. First of all, no matter how many movies have been made about it, like My Cousin Vinny or like Goodwill Hunting or whatever, listen, young people, it's never a good idea to represent yourself in court. Don't do that. Every lawyer knows this. When people try to be their own lawyer, it's always a disaster. Even innocent people need skilled lawyers to represent them before a judge. Now, there's a second A second thing to note, and Tim Keller actually makes this point. He says, your appearance and your performance in court is directly tied to your lawyer's performance in court, right? So if your lawyer is brilliant and skillful, your sentence will be favorable. If your lawyer wins, guess what? You win. His performance is imputed to you. You benefit from your lawyer's performance. That is what's being described in this passage. Look there in verse 16. It says that Jesus is a priest, think lawyer, okay? A mediator, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. And then it continues in verse 25. Look there at verse 25. Consequently, he is able to save you to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. What this is saying is that Jesus replaces the other priests, he replaces the law, but most importantly, he actually replaces us. As our lawyer, his performance is before the judge. So we look as good as he does. And and how is it that he looks? Sixteen. His life is indestructible. He is, verse 26, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. In other words, you guys, He is perfect. Well, you guys, listen. Most people don't understand this. Uh, Matt Chandler actually has helped me understand the weight of this. Most people Think of Jesus as like standing beside God, the Father, saying, Father, like I totally know that Ronnie messed up for the millionth time, he's at it again, but come on, like give him another chance, right? And we kind of have this picture of Jesus like pleading for mercy, right, at, Jesus, at the God the Father's like side or something. And, and we think, oh, that's great, but like how long can he keep this up? I mean, he's... Jesus is totally going to get sick of me, like, messing up all the time. I'm totally a hypocrite. But listen, if Jesus is pleading for mercy, then you know you've already lost, right? Jesus, as our lawyer, is not doing that. The one who always lives to make intercession, he is not pleading for mercy. He is pleading for justice. He's saying, Father, look at Ronnie. I mean, look at him, and you will see the perfection of an indestructible life. Holy, innocent, unstained. See, Jesus replaces us. He's now our substitute. He is our representative. He took our guilt to the cross, and he paid the price for our guiltiness. And it would be unjust for God the Father to punish us. It would be wrong to punish what Jesus has already paid for. And God the Father would never do anything unjust. Do you see this? Do you see what's being said? Like, if this is true, if this is Christianity, then this better effect every part of your life if this is true why because christianity is not just about jesus giving you pardon he doesn't simply take away your sins he's giving you exquisite ineffable beauty like let that sink in for a second Because Jesus has replaced you, you don't only receive pardon, but rather God looks at you and just sees exquisite beauty. Breathtaking beauty. You know, some people, like, they hear about Jesus, they're like, that's cool, I mean, I like that, he sounds awesome, but come on, like, I'm not good enough. Like, You don't know me. I'm not good enough. And that is just the point. Christianity is about having the faith to say, I am nothing. I'm nothing. But he is enough and everything. I belong to him. He replaces me. My life is hidden in Christ. That's what we're saying. Deborah. Perez, like, this is, like, the only hope we have for this next season. Like, do you want to change? Like, do you want to change? Do you want the next season to be different than this past season? Maybe I should ask like this. Are you ready to start the most amazing adventure of your life? One marked with beauty and goodness and truth. We need to follow Jesus, not religion, not priests, not the law, not even ourselves. And when Jesus replaces all of those things, that's when you can have hope that the next season's going to be a really good one. Not an easy one, but a good one. Would you pray with me? Father, oh, we would beg you, please, like, part of us just wants to be cynical. Just, like, move on. We're just waiting for lunch. Like, lunch is more beautiful than this idea that we are hidden in you and you've replaced us. Oh, Lord, our imaginations need to be baptized by your Holy Spirit. Teach us to dream once again. Like, just Save us from our cynicism. Save us from our lesser loves. Lord, we beg you. We need you. We need your spirit. To s- we need beauty, Lord. Awaken our affections once again. Awaken our imagination. We want a new season filled with hope. But you call us to follow you and to give up everything else. May Jesus... Be beautiful and believable so that choice would be easy. You're better, Lord. You are superior. Thank you for your word. In Jesus' name we pray.